welcome to Methodical, a podcast about Breaking Bad. I am Dan. And I'm Sabrina. And we are here to talk about episode three of season one, and the bag is in the river. So how did you feel about this episode, Sabrina? I think it's really hard to think about this episode without thinking about the previous episode, just because it felt to me very much like a two-parter. It's not a thing that Breaking Bad does. Breaking Bad doesn't do two-part episodes because it is so serialized. Um, But to me, that these can't really be examined without looking at the previous episode and this one together. Um, I think it's also important that it was written and directed by the same people, so it has a lot of those same feelings. But yeah, other than that, I mean, I think it's really good. I think that the plot progressed in a really interesting way. I think that it was really dramatic. Um, I love the stuff going on between Crazy 8 and Walt. I think that's definitely the best part of the episode, and we actually don't really get a lot of other stuff. We get a little bit of Skylar and Marie, we get a little bit of Hank and Walt Jr., but Walt and Crazy 8 are like the two main characters. Yeah, I I really like this episode. I find it hard to believe that they didn't uh, have this in mind already, that they were going to kill Crazy 8 off uh, earlier on in the show, and he was just going to be dead, and then this sort of line just came out of nowhere. Right. I have heard, and I don't have any credible sources to back this up, but I have heard that it the end of the pilot was left intentionally ambiguous because they weren't really sure if Emilio and Crazy 8 would both die. And they let Crazy 8 live because they liked the actor playing him so much. And they wanted to use him more, basically. So they gave him two more episodes to do more things. At least that's what I've heard. Um, So I think that that's definitely really interesting. There's a lot of really good character stuff going on that comes out of Walt and Crazy 8 in this episode. So I really enjoyed that. Well, this, yeah, this episode just, like, so much is going on, and so much of it is just going on in the development and in the way that various people are playing each other in various ways. And it's interesting to see Walt, who is terrible at deception, and then see some of the other side that actually is, like, deceitful in a in a successful way, in a way that really surprises you. Mm-hmm. As, as the audience. So the way we begin this episode is pretty horrifying and also a nice callback to tie into the previous episode with the shot from underneath and they're cleaning up all the blood and guts and viscera and stuff. Yeah, we basically start right where we left off. Mm-hmm. Um, them trying to clean up the aftermath, which I'm assuming they're doing right away because it's acid, so they can't really let it sit around. Right, they need to get on that very quickly. Uh, I think they're wearing just the gear that they had in the RV, even. So it's it's a quick process, and neither of them is having a very good time. And then we get a little bit of intercutting of a scene from the past, a flashback to Walt's previous work, which we're still very unclear about what it was. I felt like it wasn't his work, though. They very much felt like they were in a classroom to me. Um, And I'm not exactly sure how old they are in this moment, but I think that we get some interesting clues here about when it could have taken place in time. And I love the fact that they intersplice these scenes into them just cleaning up, because 
the scene could just be them cleaning up. Like, they don't need this extra textual stuff. But I love that they do that because it makes it so much more interesting and unique. It's not just them cleaning it. It's not just gross factor, slightly comedic. But they're actually doing something, which I think is really cool. But I think that it's important to note that Walt is in what seems like a classroom or a college lecture hall with a person that we will come to know as Gretchen. I don't feel like it's spoilery now to give her a name. Her mm -hmm. name is Gretchen. She does come up later. But they seem really flirty. Like, they almost kiss at one point in this episode. So their relationship is very different. Um, and Skylar obviously isn't really in the picture. So you know that this is before they met, before they got married. And it's probably when he was maybe a grad student or getting some type of degree. That's my best guess. Yeah, you're really left to wonder exactly what the nature of this relationship was and what happened to it. And that gives you some intrigue to to learn about later on in the show. It's also interesting that what they're doing is that they are breaking down, theoretically breaking down the human body into its various chemical compounds, percentage-wise, and adding that up. At the same time, there is an actual literal human body that's just been broken down into its constituent parts. And so it's an interesting play back and forth on all of that. There's also, I want to note, there's a lot of toilet stuff in this episode. Yeah. Uh, not like toilet humor, but they actually they like physically use the toilet for a variety of things in like weird ways in this episode. Mm -hmm. So the first use of the toilet in this episode is just dumping all this stuff down it, which I personally do not believe that it's going to go down. That's that's not going to work. Yeah, and there's got to be something about like not flushing acid down the toilet, right? There has to be. <laughs> I don't right? Know. Also, just like a most of a human body that's still fairly solid, that's not going to work, I don't think. Yeah. Um I think the most interesting part of the cold open is the end when Walt is speaking to Gretchen and they realize that the chemical composition is only made of about 99%. And so they leave you kind of hanging with the question, like, there's something missing, right? There's got to be more. Um, and I think that's a really interesting idea because it immediately makes me think of the soul, which comes up again at the end of the episode. I think that's kind of where you're naturally supposed to go. And that ties really nicely thematically into the rest of the episode, which we will get to later. Yes. And something missing, I think, is another thing that's really important to mm -hmm. note about this episode. Definitely. So then we uh, cut to the credits after that cold open. Skylar, Walt Jr., and Marie are painting the baby's room. Well, Marie's not helping. She it just leaves her pregnant sister to do all of the work instead while she very helpfully points out all the spots that she missed. Good job, Marie. And complains about her shoes. Yep. You know, I'm sure her feet hurt standing all day. That's nothing that a pregnant woman can empathize with. Not at all. Certainly not. But then Walt Jr. gets a telephone call. Uh, Lewis, right? Yes, it's Lewis. It's Lewis. <laughs> he can't talk right now, uh, but he goes out of the room to call Lewis back, leaving Marie, at least, to question the motives of that. Skylar's much less concerned. Uh, I love that Skylar takes kind of a very Walter-esque approach to her inquiry about the stoner character in her novel. Feels very, very much like the Walt explaining the coffee on his pants in the desert, or him telling that really weird cleavage story in the last episode. Um, I love that she's like, so I'm writing this 
thing. It doesn't have anything to do with real life, I promise. Like, don't even. Um, and I love how obvious it is. And so, clearly, Marie is able to sense that something's going on, but because of, of Walter Jr.'s kind of suspicious behavior just a second ago, she assumes that it is Junior who is smoking pot. Uh, it's quite obvious that neither Marie nor Skylar know anything about the pot. Right. At all. So then we cut to Walt and Jesse, and they're standing in kiddie pools, spraying each other with a hose. It's not as adorable as it sounds. No. Um, and then we cut pretty quickly to Jesse in the bathroom with a big bag of crystal that he's been hiding under the sink. He takes a rock and he smokes it. Um, then we cut to Walt in the basement disposing of Crazy Eight's waste in the toilet. And it's weird that there's a toilet there. Just want to point that out. That's a yeah. really play- weird place for a toilet. Um, Crazy Eight looks on and demands that Walt look at him um, because Walt tries to make it back up the stairs without really acknowledging his presence at all. Um, gesturing to the bike lock around his neck, Crazy Eight says, I wouldn't do this to my worst enemy. This is degrading. Kill me or let me go. Walt is disturbed that Crazy Eight knows his name, which he reveals that he knows Walter's name. Um, Which, you know, maybe Walt should use a pseudonym. Just a suggestion. Um, And Crazy Eight says, trust me, this line of work doesn't suit you. Crazy Eight clearly doesn't think that Walt will kill him. Um, And he is working to turn Walt against Jesse by telling Walt that Jesse was the one who revealed all of Walt's personal information, that he's a druggie, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, uh, Crazy Eight is pulling some massive manipulation in this episode uh, from a very compromised position. Uh, He is definitely the one with the power in this, in a lot of this episode. And you can tell that he's really smart. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is a very smart young individual. Uh, But yeah, Walt is very disturbed by the fact that he knows everything about him that doesn't make him feel good i think it's interesting that crazy eight says that this line of work doesn't suit you uh because that i think sort of affects walter's decisions in this episode um especially because we've already seen that walt has issues when his masculinity or his power are questioned yeah i think well it's interesting to think of how many times walt's mind has changed in this episode and how quickly it can change how uncemented he is in his convictions he's really easily swayed by one thing like he is determined to not acknowledge crazy eight but he can't and when he does his direction is completely turned away from Crazy Eight and toward Jesse, which is so interesting. Like, he's just so unfocused, so fluid in his in his convictions. It's just an interesting thing going on. Yeah, completely. So Walt is now really pissed, and he runs upstairs to Jesse, who is still smoking in the bathroom. Uh, Walt kicks open the door, and... Jesse's sitting on the toilet, so they fight kind of comically because they're, like, kicking at each other. Right, it's a little weird. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, and definitely not, like, a real fight. Like, it it felt very comical to me, that little moment. Um, so they're trying to get the bag of meth, which is first thrown in the toilet and then thrown out the window. Um, they race down the stairs to get it, but in a fit of coughing, Walt collapses. They end up meeting outside when Jesse's getting into his car. And Jesse says, you know, the coin flip is sacred. and You're not holding up your end of the deal. Um, I technically did my part, so you need to go kill Crazy 8 because coin flip. From there, we make a very odd cut to Marie in a shoe store. Um, 
And this, the whole Marie plotline feels very out of place to me in this episode. Mm-hmm. I think that it's building important character notes that come up later. But in terms of this episode, it just seems odd that this whole Marie scene exists. But anyway, um, she is trying to find a new shoe. In the earlier scene mentioned that sh- these, the shoes that she currently has makes her think of helping old people. And God forbid, we can't have that. Have mm-hmm. her think about helping old people every time she thinks about her shoes. So she needs to find new ones. And while she is grappling with a really annoying and distracted yeah. store clerk, um, yeah. She uh, she's she calls Hank, who is in the middle of a drug bust, and probably shouldn't be on the phone, frankly. Yeah, um, I I found that very odd. He seems that a little he busy. Was just very conversational while he was dealing with a, a pretty significant bust, and mm-hmm. I don't. There's this thing that you get about their relationship in that phone call that. They don't really like each other so much. They don't make a lot of time for each other. Like, they are both doing other things that are completely unrelated. They're not giving each other their full attention. It's an odd phone conversation. I guess I didn't see it that way. Because I feel like they're perfect for each other. And I think that they do really care about each other. Um, They're just in really odd circumstances. And they're just both really weird people. So this is how they communicate. And this is their way of communicating as effectively as they can. But just their rapport on the phone, I actually felt like they really do get along quite well. I think that maybe later on in the show you get a different sense of them, you get a more complex idea of them as people, but from from just watching this phone conversation, I got that, you know, there's an argumentative sort of power dynamic there where... I don't know. I don't Maybe know. I'm inferring. We can agree to disagree. Fair. I just feel like there's a lot more affection there, and it might not translate as well as, like, a Walt and Skyler type of affection, because that's pretty standard and very traditional. Um, I don't know. There's just something about it where I felt like they really do connect, because... She could go to someone else about this Walt Jr. problem. Like, Hank even brings up in their conversation, why doesn't she just ask Walt to address his own son? Um, Why does Marie feel like it needs to be Hank? And that, I think, brings up another really interesting point of masculinity, because Hank is the one that can scare Walt Jr. straight. He is in this very masculine position as they're on the phone. He's in a drug bust, and he's being very aggressive and assertive and powerful. And Walt, I mean, at least in his normal line of work, never gets to be like that and isn't as imposing. Um, So I think that he's not nearly as powerful of a figure. And they think that Hank can more effectively communicate to Walt Jr. I think that there are some interesting things happening with masculinity in this episode. Yeah, yeah. And I I guess what I'm seeing is really just from the fact that he's calling her back right in the middle of something and that's really not an ideal time where he can't properly give her his attention. I mean, he breaks up their phone call a couple of times to tell these these druggies that they need to not move around. And then uh, when he says things like she recommends that he show Walt Jr. some autopsy reports and he responds very uh, sort of just shoves it off like, don't be stupid and... And then at the end of their phone call, he says, where's my sugar? And then you see her on the other side sort of smile 
I don't know, in a way that seems really insincere to me and do this little kiss and then hang up the phone immediately. There's no real goodbye. There's no I love you. It's See, that didn't feel insincere to me at all. Like, that was their way of saying goodbye. He says, where's my sugar? And she goes, Mwah, kisses the phone and then hangs up. To me, that felt insincere and it felt... I, I don't know. It gave me a bad vibe, personally, but I don't know. Maybe I that's just me. I didn't think it was insincere at all. I all think right. that's, like, totally Hank and Marie. Like, that's my understanding of their characters in this moment is that, I mean, they're married, and they've been together, and they don't have any children, so they aren't just staying together because they have children. There's got to be something there. I don't know. Fair. I mean, yeah. I guess we don't really have any evidence that they don't have children at this point in the show, but I think that it's not spoilery to say that they don't have children. No, they don't. Well, we can we can continue to address Hank and Marie's relationship as the show progresses. Yeah, because we'll talk about it. They're not going to go anywhere, but I feel like they genuinely care for each other. But you can read the scene as you read it. That's totally yeah. fine. Anyway, that's not really the main. Though that's not the end of the scene. Um, so they hang up, and Marie decides to give up trying to get the attention of the clerk, and steals the shoes that she had been trying on, and leaves her helping old people shoes behind. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't know how you're supposed to read that scene. I kind of want to see it as a triumph, but Marie is such an unlikable character that it's it just seems kind of like a shitty thing to do. So I'm in a weird place with that because like half of me is like, yeah, I guess you showed it to that clerk, but half of me is like, you just stole a pair of shoes. Like, it's a weird thing. And it also, to me, feels like a little bit of a setup with little payoff or maybe a payoff with little setup. You haven't gotten to know Marie very much at all over the course of the show so far, so whatever you were supposed to do, whether you were supposed to feel that as a triumph or be ashamed of her for doing that, you don't really care enough because we don't know Marie very well. So I know that you get more about her character later on, and so that's the kind of thing that will affect your opinions of her, but in this moment it just felt like it didn't make sense. Yeah, I think that Marie right now is one of the least developed characters that we have. Mm-hmm. That and Walt Jr. We don't get a lot of Walt Jr. Not yet. So now we cut to a crappy motel. Some lovely scenes, including one of a used condom on the ground, and we hear sirens in the background, and we see that Hank has taken Walt Jr. here. This is the Crystal Palace. Yep, this is... Where dreams go to die, apparently. And poor Walt Jr., he thought they were going to Coldstone Creamery. <laughs> I love that little bit. I love it so much. Uh, it's great. It's a wonderful, wonderful moment. But uh, they're taking a little detour so that Hank can scare Walt Jr. straight. But he does it in a really backwards way. This is what really frustrates me about the whole... Walt Jr. smoking pot thing because there's so little communication going on here that Walt Jr. just doesn't get it. Like, obviously, he's not smoking pot, so he doesn't have to be scared straight because he's not doing anything wrong anyway, but he doesn't even understand that he's supposed to be learning a lesson. He just doesn't get it. He's like, why are we here? You're asking me a bunch of weird questions about if I want to live here. Obviously not. You brought over some weird prostitute lady to talk to me, which is also really weird and inappropriate. Um, but that's a really interesting thing that I actually wanted to talk about, if I can. Yes. Um, so when Wendy comes over and uh, 
she's like, I'm not going to suck this kid off or whatever. And Hank's like, whatever, it's fine. And then she asks if Walt Jr. is disabled. And Hank says no. He broke his leg in a playing football, and he's the quarterback. And so I find that so interesting, because is he ashamed to say that Walt Jr. has a disability? I, I noted the exact same thing, because as soon as... He jumps in really fast, too. He's like, what's wrong? She says, what's wrong with this kid? And he, he jumps in really fast. To me, yes, Hank is very insecure on behalf of Walt Jr., I think, I think what that reads to me as is that Hank thinks that having cerebral palsy is shameful. And emasculating. And emasculating. Because he could have just said, like, he was hit by a car and broke his leg. But I think it's really interesting that it was a football accident. Because, I mean, what's manlier than playing football, right? Very few things, turns I mean, out. at least according to America. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I find that really weird and really uncomfortable because, so, okay, so not only is Hank afraid of women and minorities, but he's also afraid of disabled people. Like, he's a lot of problems. Yeah, he's, he thinks that his nephew's disability speaks ill of his nephew's masculinity. That's not good. That's not healthy at all. No. Hank's kind of a jerk. Yeah. And I don't know why... Walt Jr. is okay with that. He's just sitting in the car, and and Hank says that he broke his leg in a football injury. I have some thoughts about that. So first, I think that he is a 16-year-old boy and probably isn't completely comfortable with his identity or and probably not super self-confident. Um Regardless of disability or no, like, he's a 16-year-old boy, so he's probably not very confident. Um, and he probably isn't very secure in his, himself. So he probably doesn't really know what to do in this situation because it is really weird. And he probably just doesn't think to correct it because he doesn't have that self-confidence to assert himself. Um, and then the other thing I'm thinking is that he's really, really confused about the situation in general. Does not see the point, does not get the message, and honestly thinks most of it's pretty funny more than anything else because no one bothers to take five seconds and explain why they're doing what they're doing. So he probably just thinks it's a part of the joke that is happening right now and he plays along. Yeah, that's the only thing I can come up with is that he's just very confused about what is going on. But anyway, Wendy then walks away from the situation. She goes up into a room, and who's there but Jesse. Jesse is sitting there up in the motel room waiting for Wendy to come back up, and he is very paranoid. He is very worried that she was talking to a cop, and that cop was asking about him. Pulling back some of the paranoia themes that were in the last episode, that being sure that everybody else knows what you did when nobody cares. Right. It is funny, though, because she was technically talking to a cop. And she was, and of course, it's it's Walt's brother-in-law. Yeah. I guess I think the other thing about the scene that I find really weird is that it almost feels like Hank is calling over a prostitute, like, because he wants to prostitute. Like, they don't get out of the car. It's really business-like and informal. It's really uncomfortable in general. Like, it does look like he's trying to pick up a prostitute. It really, really does, yeah. That's enough of that scene, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, so now we cut to Walt, who is making a pro-con list about killing Crazy Eight. 
They're on the con side. Uh, things there are things like murder is wrong, and also Judeo-Christian principles, which I think is the funniest item on the list because. Okay, first of all, who refu- who refers to those values as Judeo-Christian values? No one. Yeah. It just shows to me, like, his fundamental misunderstanding of religion and how, like, clinically he looks at it because it's not a thing that he really understands or cares about. Because if he did, he'd probably say something like, God is watching or eternal damnation or whatever. Just the way that he says it, Judeo-Christian principles, just sounds so textbook. It's kind of funny. It's it's very scientific. It's very, like, it's very a man of science wrote this down and not a man of God. Well, I mean, he's making a pro-con list right. about murdering someone. So, you know, if it was really about morals, he wouldn't be making a pro-con list. Right. I noted how the con side is all very similar. It's like, murder is wrong. You're not a murderer. It's you immoral. would not be able to live with yourself. It's immoral. It's all these very vague principle things, these theoreticals. And then on the pro side, he's got something very concrete. Crazy 8 will kill your entire family if you let him live. Exactly. That is a concrete thing that has consequences. And the other side doesn't have any solid consequences, good or bad. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of religion and looking at morality from a religious standpoint, while not being religious, there really is no retribution for not following those morals. I don't think that you need to have religion in order to have a moral compass, but I don't think that those affect Walt as much. I think that he's thinking at it from such a logical and scientific perspective that he's just not thinking about morals. Yeah. If morals really aren't affecting his decision. And I also think it's interesting that there are so many items on the con list, but it only takes one thing on the pro list to tip the scale. Absolutely. And I think it is in that moment when you see that pro con list that you know Walt has basically made his his decision. On the toilet. On the toilet. See, toilet things. That's a weird Bunch place. Of stuff is going on. That's a weird place to make your should I murder someone pro con list. I completely agree. I would probably make mine on the couch. Good plan. Just (laughs) throwing that out there. So, after making this list, he calls Skylar. Um, He makes another one of his really ridiculous lies. Time completely got away from him. Stupid Bogdan made me stay late, blah, blah, blah. Um, But Skylar knows that Walt quit the car wash two weeks ago because she called Bogdan and he told her. So now she knows that he's been hiding something and she is so mad that she just tells him to not come home. Um, Which I feel like is a little bit much, but she's mad, so. I mean, I would be mad too. Yeah, I guess guess my thing is I'm just surprised that she go the you know she goes straight to like just don't even bother coming home. I don't want to talk to you. I don't know where want to know where you were. I just think that's weird. Like seems like you know zero to sixty really fast. But she's really mad, so I'll take it. And hey, this is another thing. This is another reason why I feel like Hank and Marie have a bond because even if um, he Hank is talking to Marie while he's really busy at work, he still makes the time to talk to her, and they're still communicating about things. So. I think that's important because clearly uh, Walt doesn't feel comfortable talking to his wife anymore about his problems. And I mean, it's a little reasonable when you have a hostage in a basement of some dude that you taught high school to. Um, Probably don't want to tell your wife that. But I mean, this is all happening because he didn't want to tell his wife that he had cancer. So I think that's really interesting that 
even that, like, really important big thing, he doesn't feel comfortable addressing with his wife. You, you raise a very good point. Yes. Is Walt Jr.'s consumption or non-consumption of pot as grave as cancer diagnosis? No, but hey, at least they're talking. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, I also think that, yeah, Walt's ridiculous bad lying comes up again, because what time is it at night? It seems like it's an absurdly late hour, and for him to have lost track of time because his boss had him do this and that and the other seems a little bit unlikely to me, but maybe that's just me. No, I think it, it does definitely seem late. It's hard to say how late, yeah. but it's really hard to know. But it seems like Skylar is at home and it's dark in the house, which means that Walt Jr. is probably asleep. And um, so it's got to be, what, like 10, 10-ish? Yeah, who's getting their car washed at 10 p.m.? Nobody. Yeah, exactly. Not even in Albuquerque. Not even in Albuquerque. But then we just get the sound of... Crazy Eight from the basement, yelling that he's hungry. Hey, Walter, he's hungry. So it's time for Walter to make a sandwich. Well, it's really more like it's time for Walter to continue to avoid his problems because he could, you know, save that slice of bologna and that slice of bread and just go do the deed already. But no, he's going to make him a sandwich first, and he's going to cut off the crusts. The sandwich-making montage, I just want to note, is shot very similarly to a meth montage, and it's great. Excellent, excellent stuff. He's also like, oh, there's a lot of decisions he's making about what tools he's going to use and how he's going to... It's absurdly technical. He's very methodical about his sandwich-making. He's very, very methodical about his sandwich-making. All right, so anyway, carrying the plate downstairs, Walt has a coughing fit. For a second, he seems okay, but then he takes another step and collapses, and the sandwich plate shatters. Yep. Um, Then we cut to him waking up on the floor. It's been about 15 minutes, says Crazy 8, who is now standing over Walt. Uh, Crazy 8 inquires whether or not Walt breathed in the same toxic gas that he had breathed in. Uh, Walt says, no, he has lung cancer. So the only person in the whole world that Walt has confided his cancer diagnosis to is Crazy 8, his basement hostage. Yup. And I'm actually going to rewind for a second because that shot of him coughing and waking up on the floor is exactly the same shot and exactly the same sequence of events, basically, as we had in the first episode. Sorry, second episode when he wakes up on the bathroom floor. He coughs, he wakes up, someone is asking what's going on. Of course, in the first episode, it's his wife, and in this episode, it's his hostage. This one, he's willing to tell that he has cancer. Which speaks to me of him not being afraid of Crazy 8 knowing about him anymore. Personally, to me, that's Mm -hmm. what it felt like. Yeah, I mean, he's at this point on, much more willing to open up and confide in Crazy 8. Um, Perhaps it's because he's starting to see Crazy 8 more like a person. Before, he wasn't really a person. He was an enemy, a threat, sure, but he wasn't really a person. Like, how could you do this to a person? Anyway, um, especially just, like, coming from a normal background, going straight from this to, like, having a hostage. And, And chaining him up this way is pretty severe. So maybe it's that he sees Crazy 8 as more of a human being, and I think As we go through the episode some more, we see that that is, in fact, the case. But I think it also could partially be because he has somewhat made his decision that 
it doesn't really matter what Crazy Eight knows or doesn't know at this point. So you think at this point he has decided to kill him? I just think that um, he definitely changes his mind a couple of times in the episode um, about whether or not he's going to. So I was just asking. I think that, yes, he has somewhat made up his mind, at least in this moment. So anyway, uh, after admitting that he has lung cancer, Walt coughs a little more and picks up the pieces of the plate and goes back upstairs to make Crazy Eight another Sammy. Uh, Sans crust with beer. And I can I can we talk about the color yellow for a second? Oh my god, the color yellow. I love it. Um cuz I was making notes about the color yellow all over the place and I think it's so interesting because I didn't really notice this until he was in the kitchen, but he's got the yellow broken plate. Walt's shirt is yellow and the kitchen itself is yellow. And this reminded me a lot of the yellow plastic bag from the last episode which he had originally thought of as a murder weapon. And yellow is supposed to be such a bl- such a bright, happy, warm color. But I really feel like in this show, at least in the context of this episode, yellow was really a signal for danger. Um, bad things are going to happen. Almost like a warning color. Yeah, I think that Crazy Eight's vest is also yellowish. At least it looks like yellow in the light that we have. Um, it's a little bit muddied though, which is kind of interesting to that point about being dangerous, right? Uh, cause it's very unclear to Walt whether or not Crazy Eight is actually dangerous to him or not. I find it so interesting that Walt is wearing yellow though, because it's not a Walt color. I don't know if he ever wears yellow again. He might, but I, I just, I don't, when I picture him in my brain, I will usually picture him in like a white shirt or maybe a green shirt but not yellow. Also, Jesse's wearing yellow. Jesse's also wearing... Everybody is wearing yellow. Everything is yellow. It's very good. Except the baby's room, which is interesting. They're not painting it yellow, which is such a girl color. They're painting it green, which is kind of a gender-neutral color. Mm -hmm. Do they know the baby's a girl? They do. They just found that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they found out. I find that interesting, that they're not gendering the baby's room. And they're painting the room after they found out. Yeah. So they're not painting it before like we don't care what it's going to be they're painting it after they already know mm-hmm. oh that is interesting i didn't even think about that cool so then he brings yeah he brings down the sandwich and the beer and then they get to talking crazy eight notes that getting to know him is not going to make it easier to kill him in fact it's going to make it harder and walt knows this walt learns his real name wants to know where he came from all this other stuff about him, but he says that all he's really looking for is a good reason not to kill Crazy Eight at this point, because we already know that he's pretty sure that Crazy Eight is going to murder him and his family. Mm-hmm. Before Walt can leave, made it, having made up his mind that he's got to do what he's got to do, Crazy Eight has him sit down and try to convince him, tells him a bit about himself. He's from Albuquerque. His parents own a a furniture store where Walter probably has shopped before. He may have bought his son's crib there. Yes. That's a really sentimental piece of furniture. It's not like they just bought a sofa. I mean, it's his son's crib. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that is a pretty big deal. Um, I love this scene. I just want to say that, first of all. I love this scene. I love how genuine it feels, and that really shows you how skilled both of the actors are. Um... Obviously, Crazy Eight doesn't make it past this episode, but the actor who plays him does an amazing job. 
and makes Crazy Eight out to be a really likable guy. This is a guy that you could probably get to know, and you know that he, you know, he has his business degree. You know that he wanted to study music. I mean, you really develop kind of a connection with him, as Walt does the same. And it takes about five minutes for you to feel like you really kind of know Crazy Eight, and that you're like, wow, you're a smart dude. You're a likable guy. I think it goes to show just how you can't take anybody at face value. Like Absolutely. You, everybody has layers. You don't know anybody's story just by looking at them. You would never guess that being a drug lord, you never would think that he had an interest in studying music. You would never think that he has an actual business degree. Um, those are all really interesting, and I think it's so interesting how quickly you become endeared to him and want to trust him. Like, you're, I want to say I'm pretty convinced that he wasn't going to kill Walt. Um, until he makes the move under his shirt. But I was convinced. Yeah, first time watching this episode, I totally was on the side of Crazy 8. I was as convinced as Walt when Walter decides that he's going to go get the key for the U-lock. Totally on board. I'm like, yeah, this guy is good. This guy is great. And I don't know what's going to happen, but Walt's going to get out of this somehow. It'll be fine. Because Crazy 8's a good guy. Crazy, it's a decent human being. It's just such a good scene. And you're absolutely right that it feels so genuine. Even, like, the bit with them trying to, like, remember the old jingle from mm-hmm. the the furniture store. It's so good. Just the dialogue alone is just carries this scene. It's really, really excellent. I think this is the first scene that's really indicative of just how good the acting in the show is. I don't think that a lot of the characters have had much to do yet. They've been playing pretty standard roles. They haven't been given a lot to do in terms of character development or complexity. But this is like the first really nuanced Breaking Bad moment, I think. Um, At least from my perspective and the way I'm reading the show. Up till now, it could have been done by any actor, really. The roles they're playing, the things they're doing. But as they grow into the roles the complexity and the nuance really grows too. And I think this is the first glimmer of that. I also wanted to note the um, the small world comment because Walter probably got uh, Walter Jr.'s crib from the furniture store owned by Crazy Eight's father. And Crazy Eight was very probably working there at the time because he was a young boy, probably working after school in the shop. And the comment is made that it's a small world. Obviously, of course, it's a comment that people make about that. But just previously in the episode, we also had another small world moment where Hank is right outside of Jesse's door. I don't know. That jumped out at me for some reason or another. Well, just also the fact that when Walt was in the back of the car during the ride along, he happened to see Jesse. And that's another small world moment. Like, what are the odds of them knowing each other? You wouldn't think, but it happened. Right. And I don't know how big Albuquerque is. So, yeah, it's a small world, but there's there's something distinctly, I don't know, would you say there's something distinctly American about the concept of a small world? Small town? I don't know. The, wor- the words small world will forever make me think of Disneyland. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty American thing. I don't know if it's because it's distinctly American or not. Um, I thought that you were going to ask me about small world in terms of fate because of the coin flip and that's a thing that can be explained by fate like 
people can say, well, fate chose that for you. You didn't have to choose it for yourself. And Jesse talking about how the coin flip is sacred, I think kind of plays into the whole fate thing, because if it wasn't sacred and it wasn't fate, then they could just flip the coin again or ignore the coin flip. But they hold so much faith in it, or at least Jesse does, and they treat it so seriously, this coin flip, which seems like such a cavalier thing, that um, I think that fate could be an interesting theme to examine in the show. And little small world moments like Jesse and Walt seeing each other, or the fact that Crazy Eight and Walt may have met before, I think those are kind of interesting issues of fate. Yeah, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought of. The fact that you bring up the coin flip is very interesting, I think, because let's say that that coin flip the other way. Mm-hmm. I mean, this would be an entirely different situation. Totally. There would be obviously no problems with Emilio's body. Right. It would not be an issue at all. And as much as Jesse didn't want to do the other thing, Jesse has a very different moral compass. I don't know what Jesse would have done with killing Crazy Eight, but... I just don't think he would have been able to do it. I'm not sure if he would have been able to do it. And if he had killed Crazy Eight successfully... I think that probably would have triggered some type of downward spiral that he would not have been able to get out of. And this is pulling a little bit on my knowledge of Jesse's character, and I don't want to say anything more than that. But, I mean, his stress response is going to Crystal. We saw that earlier in this episode. And so the weight of having to have melted and cleaned up bodies is enough to make him want to smoke. And I think that killing a man is that times a hundred or that times a thousand even. It's so much bigger than just cleaning up a dead body because that's a much more passive act than killing somebody. So I don't know, just knowing them as characters, and this is drawing a little bit on my knowledge of them as people much in a much more complex way than they've been developed now. So maybe it's a little unfair, but I just, I just think that I don't think that Jesse could have done it. Yeah. I don't know what would have happened, but it would be a completely different show if the coin had flipped the other way. They might have been able to part ways much easier. Like, Walt could have properly disposed of the bodies. If Jesse had, Jesse kills Crazy 8, goes into a downward spiral, Walt doesn't really care. Could have just left Jesse. That would have yeah. been the end of the show. Walt would have been very, very fine with leaving. In fact, even if Jesse couldn't have done it, I think Walt would have left as soon as the first job was done. I don't think so. I don't think about that because I think that Walt needs the security and the knowledge of it being done because he doesn't want to live with not knowing whether or not Crazy 8 is out there. Because if he has that knowledge, then Crazy 8 could kill him and his family at any time. That's a good point. I think he'd make sure it, it happened. And he might hold the uh, coin flip just as sacredly as Jesse does because he wants to make sure that both jobs are done. And... If he can hold the fact that he was able to do his part of the deal before Jesse was, he totally would. He would totally hold it over Jesse's head, just like Jesse held it over his head. Um, because there's an interesting power dynamic happening there about who has more power in the relationship. And at the beginning of this episode, Jesse had more power because he'd done his end of the bargain. And Walter hadn't. And Jesse could hold that over him. Yeah. Long tangent. Let's go back to <laughs> the yellow kitchen. He's going to get the key. And he realizes that there is a piece missing in the plate when he throws away his beer can. Yeah, he's not 100% sure, of course. So he pulls everything out and then literally puts together the pieces, which is a nice little, you know, uh, visual thing. 
where he puts together all the pieces and there's something missing and he's then digging through the trash trying to make sure. Brian Cranston. Like, holy, holy crap. Uh, so good. I guess I thought that he was pretty sure when he looked into the trash can and then just needed to prove himself wrong because he really, really wanted to be wrong. He really, really wanted to be wrong. But I think that he was pretty sure when he looked in the trash. Yeah, I, I think I think so, too, because through that whole thing, he's just basically just begging he's Crazy desperate. Eight to not do this. Mm-hmm. But, of course, he knows that Crazy Eight was basically just playing him the whole time, manipulating him. Well, he learns that. I don't think he knew that. Well, he knows He knows once he puts the plate together. Right. Yeah. He, oh, oh it's an emotional moment. Uh, I forgot how intense his reaction to that was. And he is really torn up by that. So then he goes back downstairs. And he's got the key. And Crazy Eight reminds him that he's doing the right thing. And Walter asks him to turn around so he can better get at the lock. Crazy Eight's back is facing Walter. You have this great camera angle where you can see Crazy Eight's face and Walter's face at the same time facing you. And it's really weird when you know that Crazy Eight is just saying things to get out of it. You know what's weird is that the way I read that, so it's okay, so another thing that's weird is in my notes, once you learn his name, I immediately started writing Domingo and not Crazy Eight. Um, But anyway, so you see Domingo turn around, and I don't know, the way that I read the scene is that, like, yes, he's planning on stabbing Walter, but there's a moment where he's just so relieved that he's not going to be chained up anymore, and it's like a really genuine moment of sincerity. At least that's how I read it, because he's like, okay, I'm going to get out, and I convinced him. And yeah, he's going to try and kill Walter, but... I don't know, there's just something about the moment that I find kind of heartbreaking because he is so convinced that he has won. And it just seems so sincere and so genuine that despite his intentions, like, my heart kind of breaks for him a little bit. There's a lot of things going on at that moment. Um, And then, of course, we see Walter's point of view noticing that Domingo is reaching under his shirt for something or other. Well, I mean, I think that he was waiting for Domingo to turn, to, to, to pull it out from under mm-hmm. his shirt. He was just, I think that's why he was stalling. He has him turn around, they're chatting a little bit where he like very slowly goes to the lock. Um, and then he sees him go for the shirt and then he's, you know, his theory has been proven. Mm-hmm. And so he asks if... Crazy Eight is going to stick him with that piece of plate as soon as he unlocks him. And at that moment, Crazy Eight knows that he knows, and he knows that Crazy Eight knows that he knows, and so the struggle ensues. And Walter has opted to, in the moment of desperation, just use the lock. Yeah, it's a chaotic moment of uh, strangling and also Crazy Eight trying to use the plate to swing back uh, at a very awkward angle, and Walter, you know, dodging it a little bit here and there. He does get stabbed in the leg, mm-hmm. and then Crazy Eight uh, dies, and Walter apologizes a million times. Yeah, I mean, when Domingo goes limp, Walt immediately starts crying. And it's kind of a powerful moment. He cries, and he says, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. It's... Real rough, and you really see the effect that this has on Walt, especially after getting to know him 
especially after learning a bunch about him and being so convinced that he's a good guy who deserves to be set free and to continue living. Yeah, I think that Walt really did make it a lot harder for himself. Not that it's easy to begin with, but just the fact that, you know, he started to get to know him, he started to establish his connection, he started to establish trust, and then it was broken, that makes the moment so much harder and so much more powerful. Um, so I think that he really did, it was like, a, it was a moment of self-sabotage, really, more than anything else. Yeah, it's completely, I agree. Um... I do think that the setting of this whole episode, the basement, is really interesting. That particular basement feels very tomb-like, and the two of them spend so much time down there, it it seems fitting, because they both are two guys who are basically as good as dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, a lot of time in the basement this episode, and it just, it makes sense. We cut back to the outside, suburban paradise... Old people are power walking. There are sprinklers. And then there's Jesse in his red convertible back at home. Um, Jesse checks the RV. It's clean. There's no evidence of what happened just a few days ago. Um, and then he goes into the basement. Crazy Eight, Walt, and the poo bucket are all gone. And the bike lock remains innocuous. And this moment is, I think, where the power dynamic shifts. Because Jesse kind of totally screwed up his end of the deal. And Walt... Has not only held up his end, but he's cleaned up after himself. He's cleaned up after to both of them. I think Jesse is realizing at that moment, like, wow, he did it. I am shocked. So we get a quick cut to Walt's chemistry class. Carmen comes in, rolling in the TV, and just says that, you know, Walt's out sick today. Video days. They were the best. Always the best. Except that those kids don't get to watch Bill Nye. So they're a loss. Bill Nye doesn't exist in this world. <laughs> What a sad world. Sad world. Um, anyway, then we quickly cut away to Hank and Gomez. They have found Crazy Eight's car, and they have quickly identified this spot in the desert as an abandoned cook site. Um, Hank says some pretty insulting things to Gomez about his culture and heritage, and refuses to trust his partner's ability to search a car. I mean, granted, he didn't find the little meth stash, but I mean, he clearly disrespects Gomez. He clearly does not see him as an equal, even though they are also supposed to be partners. Um, He's just kind of, you know, more garbage of a human being. Um, Hank, not Gomez. I love Gomez. Gomez is great. Um, Anyway, so then they find the trap in the radio and find the bag of meth. It's Walt's cook. It's the one that Jesse had brought to Crazy 8 to sell. Um, they also find the gas mask and allude to having had a snitch who worked for them, co- compromised. It's a little line. Yeah, um, it's, and I don't it's know if really it ever, short. And I don't know if it ever comes up again, but they it's it's really kind of thrown in there. Yeah, I don't know exactly what that is. I don't remember that. I don't remember so that either. So we'll see if that pays off at all. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the question there is, is who was the snitch? Was Amelia the snitch or was Crazy Eight the snitch? Yeah, I do not... No. Me either. Oh, you know what? Okay, so this is actually just me just thinking of this right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the snitch. They had a snitch who ratted out the Emilio and Jesse cook site, right? Because Emilio, according to Crazy 8, thought it was Jesse who ratted it out. I don't remember now. I don't remember either. And it's it's a really quick line that they don't really give much time or attention to. They just make some type of comment about 
their snitch probably having been compromised. I'm thinking maybe, maybe this doesn't ever pay off in the show, but maybe they were setting up Jesse as a snitch to the DEA. I was thinking maybe they were setting up Crazy Eight being a snitch to the DEA. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember if that has any payoff or if that goes anywhere. Just a quick thought. Well, we'll see if that, we'll keep an eye out for that. We'll see. Anyway. So and then we cut to Walt. He is sitting on a bridge in his car, watching the cars pass perpendicularly below. Um, and then we cut back to the scene at the beginning with Gretchen and Walt in the classroom, talking about what makes up the human body, pretty much right where we left off, when Walt says something's missing. And Gretchen asks, what about the soul? And Walt says, there's nothing but chemistry here. Um, and they're almost nose to nose, maybe about to kiss. And, yeah, then we go, we cut to Walt going home. Skylar's in the bedroom, and she's clearly been crying. And Walt says, there's something I have to tell you. Is he going to tell her about the meth? Probably not. (laughs) I mean... Is he going to tell her about the cancer? Probably. Probably. Um, And that's it. That is the third episode of season one. Yeah. I just wanted to note that uh, Walt and Skyler have a giant wooden fork hanging on their wall. Mm-hmm. It's like the most American family thing you can get. Oh, yeah. Giant fork on your wall. That and really bad family caricatures. Oh, the bad family portraits are the worst. That you, like, hang in your hallway so everyone has to see them. Ugh. Yeah, but that's that episode. I like it. I found less to analyzing this one but maybe that's just because my my brain wasn't working super great today when we were watching it or maybe it's just because there's a little bit less to talk about you know i feel like we had a lot to talk about anyway so even if you felt like this was a less meaty episode that doesn't mean that there wasn't a lot to discuss i think that there are a lot of interesting themes in play new ones as well as ones that we have introduced in previous episodes such as things like the partnership and the power dynamic the coin flip um building relationships interestingly the idea of something being missing um i don't know i think that there was quite a lot to talk about here i just feel like this episode had less to do in terms of setting up the plot in terms of introducing all these characters and giving them all these things to do so we know who they are and how they're working together. We kind of established that pretty much. Like, in terms of the main cast of Breaking Bad, we've met, like, over half of them already. Yeah. There are a couple characters later on that become important, but this is basically our main cast that will be with us for a while. So, uh, yeah, I think that it was just, it just had less to do, but we got to see a lot more of Marie. We got to see a lot more of Hank. So we're growing to know them better, for better or for worse. And yeah, I think that the idea of partners is interesting. I know that I mentioned Walt and Jesse as partners, obviously, but also Skylar and Walt as partners, I've mentioned in the past. But I did want to bring up that Hank and Gomez is a really, really interesting and important partnership in this show as is Hank and Marie's partnership as a couple. Yeah, that particular, the last one is going to be pretty instrumental in a lot of ways in the show, the Hank and Marie partnership. 
so I think that's a good one that we got more of an introduction to. Well, and I think it's also going to be really interesting to compare and contrast the way that Walt and Skyler are as a marriage and the way that Hank and Marie are as a marriage. And their definitions of marriage definitely differ in the way that they communicate is different and the way that they have established themselves as families is different because, you know, Walt and Skyler have a child and another one on the way and Hank and Marie don't have any children. And, and interesting comparisons like that can be made and I think that there's a lot of interesting juxtapositions that are going on there. Um, particularly between Skylar and Marie because they're sisters, because they're so different. I think that, that you can really compare them and the show kind of begs you to compare them. Yeah. I don't think that there was less to talk about. I found this episode to be more... I really like this episode. I think this is my favorite of the episodes so far, which is weird because it's really dark and twisted in a lot of ways. But I, I think that the... In particular, the scene between Walt and Domingo and just their acting and the writing... I just find it so good. This is what makes Breaking Bad on a different level than most shows, because most shows not only wouldn't do this, but most shows can't do this. They don't give themselves the space. They don't have the actors to do it. They don't have the writers to do it. They don't have the environment to do it. Um, so I just think it's really interesting, and that's what really endeared me to the show, and that scene in particular is just, like, br I mean, it's brilliant. I think the thing that really jumped out at me about that whole scene that is truly unique to Breaking Bad is exactly as you say, other shows don't give themselves the space to do that. But also, whenever you have a scene like that in a lot of other shows, it's really obvious and it's really predictable in a, in a way that this scene, it just wasn't. It felt really natural mm -hmm. without me knowing that like, oh, I know what this conversation is going to be. This is going to be this guy trying to tell this other guy like these really absurd philosophical reasons why he shouldn't kill him and it's going to be overblown and too dramatic and this was really simple and mm -hmm. really genuine and just felt like a real conversation that two people would actually have that does make them feel like they are you know two connected human beings in a way Another thing that I really like, and this is not just true for this episode, but it's true for the series in its entirety, is that it is so unpredictable. The writing is not predictable. At least I never thought it was. I could never predict what was going to happen in a story arc. Like, in the pilot, would you ever guess that in two episodes, Walt would have murdered two people? Probably not. Um, like, where you start and where we've ended up so far is incredible and so unpredictable and so much more than I thought because I think that the the pilot because of its kind of generic nature and the fact that it's so commercial in a lot of ways really makes you think you know where it's going like he's gonna try and make some money making meth and he's gonna have some ups and downs but it's gonna all work out in the end probably so I just think it's interesting that um you go from this guy to a murderer so quickly and in such a weird unpredictable way and like from here could you predict what the sh is going to happen at the end of the season probably not and since you haven't seen it in a while like do you remember what happens i think i do but i could be wrong it was just kind of a rhetorical question like if you were watching this for the first time from here like you probably couldn't predict what was going to happen oh no way i think that's the, the thing that's so good about the show is that you can't 
tell where it's going. It's not ever predictable, and it doesn't fall into those traps of, of you being like, okay, I know exactly what's going to happen now. Um, I don't feel like I ever feel like that. So anyway, like you said, season one, episode three, not much new happening, not a lot introduced. The story did take a little bit of a jump, but because it didn't have as much to do, I feel like you're right, there's not as much to analyze. So this discussion portion will just be a little bit shorter, and I think that's totally okay. We had a lot to talk about during the Beat by Beat. I think we've talked about a lot of interesting things. I'm still trying to keep track of things like the swimming pool, which sadly made no appearance in this episode. I'm also trying to keep track of colors and clothes, which I think was successful doing in this episode. Um, I'm still thinking about America and what the white family is saying about the traditional American family and the American dream. Those are things I'm still really interested in. Um, and partnership, of course, so important, will be forever. Just That's going to be a thing I'm going to talk about a lot. Yeah, I think the noting the color of yellow as warning color is going to be important later. I'm not sure how, but I think it will. Okay. Uh, I'm going to continue to keep an eye on how, of course, the characters uh, develop uh, in relationships with each other. Um, I think the power dynamic idea is really good, and camera angles are often used to change power dynamics, so I think... I'm going to try and focus more on how the camera is being used to display who's in charge of things. They do shift a lot in this show and in the various different relationships that everybody has with each other. So we'll see how that works out. But yeah, duality, all that good stuff, still I guess, going. I guess the other thing that I really wanted to bring up is the flashback, because... We don't get a lot of those in this show. This is not a flashback type show. We don't get a lot of, this is what Walt was doing when he was a grad student. We don't get that very often. So I think that this is pretty significant because they're not frequent. I don't think that's a spoiler saying that they don't happen very often. Um, and I read on the Breaking Bad wiki that this is chronologically the earliest scene in time we will ever see. So I think it would be interesting to try and piece together Walt's backstory from the pilot to, you know, as far back as we can possibly go. Like, how he met Skyler, and how he got to where he is, how he got from being a researcher that contributed to a Nobel Prize winning discovery to being a high school chemistry teacher, how that happened I think would be really interesting. How he got from almost making out with Gretchen to being married to Skylar, how did that happen? I think that those are all really interesting things that are not explicitly ever given to us. Um, I think that they're all pretty seamlessly woven into the background and there's some, there are things that you have to put together yourself and I really want to try and do that and like solve the mystery of why is he a high school chemistry teacher married to Skylar. Yeah and I think there are a lot of things you can infer about his character from what we can try and learn about his background like why he is the way he is now. So yeah I think we should really keep an eye on that. All right well I think that's about it for and the bags in the river. Next week, we will be discussing season one, episode four, Cancer Man, which is, again, written by Vince Gilligan. This is the fourth episode that Vince Gilligan has written. He has written all of the episodes so far. And it is directed by a man named Jim McKay. And this looks like it's his only episode that he ever directs. So that'll be interesting. But it should be really good because, I mean, we've basically finished our first major story arc of the show. We've gone from normal dude to meth murderer guy in three episodes, which is pretty amazing. 
Yeah, that's quite the transformation. It's going to be really, really interesting next four episodes of season one. I'm really excited. All right. Me too. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.